50k. Yeah. I'm the only one live, yeah. I have no idea. If they keep cutting me in and out. Kevin Gilbert's smartphone tries to balance out the harsh brightness of police spotlights and the blackness of night. Any trace of celestial light are flooded out. There's a trail of stopped cars along the highway. It's unknown if these cars are support for water protectors or police. So you're looking at the bridge on 1806, and right now these are peaceful unarmed water protectors being fired upon with tear gas, mace, a water cannon, concussion grenades, and rubber bullets. They're in an enclosed space where they cannot escape left or right. They're on a bridge. So when the tear gas goes in there, the only option is inhale tear gas or trample each other. Right now, you'll see the family staying together and they're inhaling tear gas. They're not trampling each other. They're about to unleash the LRAD, which is the noise um, cannon, which disorientates people. These are peaceful, unarmed people that you are watching. I can't get a better, a better picture for you, but you'll see on the lights on the hill in the background are the force after force of the militarized police. This was on Sunday, November 20, heading into Thanksgiving week. It's the stand against the 1,172-mile Dakota Access Pipeline that started after the pipeline's approval in July this year. There are no signs of federal government intervention this evening, and it's likely that things may get worse during the harsh winter. But the thousands of water protectors, a mix of young and old, indigenous and immigrant, make their stand. Bernie Sanders shared my live feed. Thank you, Bernie. Just keep sharing this and watching this, because this is unarmed civilians being fired on by militarized police. The water cannon, it's sub-zero temperature right now. My friend just went up there to take blankets to the people so that they don't get hypothermia. She was tear gassed so hard she puked and she peed her pants because you cannot get out of there. And this is what they're doing to peaceful, unarmed people right now on American soil. This is what your tax dollars is paying for. If you don't like what you're seeing, keep sharing it. Contact the White House, contact the Army Corps of Engineers, look at who's supporting energy transfer partners and take your money out of those. This is a public road that's blocked. This week on Making Contact, we bring you voices from the water protectors at Standing Rock. Afterwards, we hear from Making Contact community storytelling fellow, Vincent Medina, who shares his personal journey to help keep Chochenyo Ohlone culture and language alive. In between violent encounters precipitated by police, the communities that have united and organized are diverse. And just as diverse are the motivations drawing people towards the fight to protect land and water. Some of these stories are being documented by a grassroots media group called Voices of Standing Rock. These oral histories are revelatory, deeply personal, and deeply political. We share one of these voices, Audrey De La Rosa, a Native American from Cayenta, Arizona, who had to make a critical life choice to join the struggle at Standing Rock. Me coming home to the reservation, that's my personal conflict, choosing between the Red Road versus the Western Road. My great-grandfather has land up in the mountains of Windorock, where my grandma's originally from. It's like, do I go to Windorock and like eventually build my home learning my language, knowing these traditions, or do I go to Washington 
and go be a program director for the LGBTQ community with $40,000 a year with benefits. That was two weeks ago I got that job offered. And I was like, no, I'm good. And, you know, majority of people were like, are you crazy? This is like what every millennial is trying to do. And you're turning it down. I love going to sweat lodges every Saturday and talking to the other woman. I love going to ceremonies and staying up night chanting and singing and hearing my native language spoken and having uh, spiritual experiences and having teachings from older generations. The elders are like, enjoy yourself when you're young, indulge in it, be fast, go run, go explore these mountains, go do all that you can, because one of these days you're gonna be, you're gonna be old and your hands are gonna come in together, your joints are gonna hurt. And he's like, go indulge it, go enjoy it, go do all that you can. They always told me, like, you know, if you believe in something to fight for it, go, go get up and go do it. You know, you don't need permission, you don't need to tell everybody what you're doing. You don't need to be recognized, you know, that humility, that humbleness. I've always seen that in my grandparents. They've always helped out people, but nobody knew where that help came from. And I've always admired that. So I adopted that into my own doctrine and constitution. And I really treasure those, those teachings because you only get your grandparents once. When you sit, especially as a young person, you're sitting in a way to know that you may have to get up and go do something. Maybe somebody's about to have a baby or maybe somebody needs some sort of medicine. Maybe a message needs to go up. If you're a young, able person, your back better be straight. You better be sitting in a position where if you have to get up and start running, you better go. So in that way, I was sitting upright and ready to go. And when the opportunity came, I was like, this is what I'm doing. The day before, I was like, so, going to Standing Rock. And they're like, why? And I was like, because. History is being made, and I want to be part of it, knowing that I contributed. I'm here. I'm able, you know. And if I see somebody chopping wood, no problem. I'll go over there. And if you need help with cooking, no problem. As an academic scholar, I've written my own um, academic papers of how social change begins on the reservation and it's happening. I came here to listen for their teachings, for their narratives, their conversations, and um, maybe it will spark a solution. I came home to give back to my community, looking at the potential of like what could happen with the reservation. It's being from a cross-country coach to economics, biology teacher, just kind of jack-of-all-trades in education. And I think that's really my main thing was going to school and coming back and giving the kids the truth of what college is like. Having a professor cross out your paper and call it rubbish and shove it back at you, you know, you're just kind of like, all right, I'll try it again. <laughs> That's why I keep telling my communities, like, don't be afraid to fail. It's like, you're going to cry, but so what? You know, get up, try it again, fail again. You got to fail a lot to learn how to do everything that you're going to do. You're going to be, um, have a lot of rocks chucked at you in the academic Western world, but you got to learn how to laugh, learn how to be flexible, learn how to be patient, 
learn how to be transformative. And if there's work to be done, don't be told what to do. Get up and go do it. Back in April, a group of Lakota Sioux women from the Standing Rock Sioux tribe were crucial figures in starting the Sacred Stones camp when they prayed that the waters remain pure. The camp has grown beyond the Lakota Sioux women, but they've inspired many other women to show support with their presence. We hear from S of the First Nations, who came all the way out from Toronto, Canada. I got really sad because I knew how much the Lakota people would sacrifice to protect their land because they have throughout history, right? They have a long history of resistance and protecting the Black Hills and the Badlands and, you know, territory all through here. And I was very restless at home. And so we drove from Toronto, jumped in the car, we were on the road by 4 a.m. and we drove straight through to South Dakota. My community had an occupation and protest and resistance. And so I knew what it was like as well to sit and on the front lines of your territory and have police and riot gear marching towards you. We had uh, blocked off the road, and then about 100 meters away was about 100 people from the town. You know, as Indigenous people, as we were resisting the colonial violence, I think the town really saw its attack against them when it really wasn't. But that anger that they had really became tangible. They were throwing rocks, they were throwing uh, beer bottles, they were yelling racial slurs. There was uh, OPP and riot gear that came marching in. Full riot gear on their helmets, their assault rifles. And there was about a hundred of them. And uh, all the white people started cheering for them, yelling and screaming all these things. And I was like 18 at the time. And I remember sitting there and being like, I'm gonna get beat up now. Like, you know what I mean? We're gonna get arrested. No one really moved. We sat there and there was people drumming and they continued to drum. And uh, the OPP came and walked in and they uh, formed a line across the road and they lined up between the protesters and the um, white protesters. And they turned and they faced the white people and they put their backs towards the native people. It took a second for people to catch on what was happening. And then the white protesters were like, you're facing the wrong way. And it's like, well, no, like these struggles aren't always uh, that narrative you know it's not cowboys versus indians you know it's not that kind of a idea anymore right people don't really empathize with indigenous people because there is that kind of perception of a stoic indian person it's hard to understand how deeply grieving a lot of our communities are the underpinnings of all of this are in europe you know, in 1093 or 1094, when the Papal Bulls uh, made it so that non-Christian lands was terra nullius, like that's the legal basis, right, that was used to colonize uh, North America. And the indigenous people here were non-Christians, and so it was like this land wasn't occupied. And so that premise and underpinning was the logic that was used to destroy whole cultures and nations. America, Canada as countries, require the illegitimacy of indigenous peoples to be able to justify their existence and their governance over the land. Because indigenous communities are still actively experiencing colonization, they still experience trauma. 
because that's a lot of people say right they're like oh you should you know go home and get over it and well it's hard to get over something that's still actively happening you know or that's something that you have to worry about happening tomorrow you can't really get over that that impending uh harm the more that struggle exists the more vulnerable indigenous people are made uh women in this structure are especially vulnerable because they experience you know western colonial gender violence i joke that i have like one of those signs up in my cubicle that says like it has been this many days since i've cried at work and it's usually less than a few in 2014 there was 1182 indigenous women that have been murdered in canada since the 1980s and even more that are missing there's a disproportionate amount of Indigenous women that are missing because they don't have access to justice. They don't have access to a police force that's willing to look for them or to do an investigation that's going to find them. And so you see a lot of women missing where other women, the police would still be looking for them. Canadians become fatigued to seeing another report of a missing woman or a murdered Indigenous woman, but those communities live with that grief for years. I know women that are missing. I know um, women that have been murdered. And so what I do is advocate for policy and uh, programming and responses that's going to end systemic violence against Indigenous women. That's a really strong way that I can support the self-determination of my nation and support the self-determination of other Indigenous nations. You know, the strength of Indigenous cultures is dependent on the health of women and how children are raised. I wouldn't want to presume to speak for any other nation and their culture and their experience with colonialism, but I do support them by coming to hear them. And even if that means sitting in the rain in a tent, I feel like that's the least I can do for a nation that has uh, supported me so much in my identity and how I've grown into a person. You just heard a sample of interviews, courtesy of Voices of Standing Rock. If you're interested in listening to more or learning more about the group, please visit their website on Facebook. Search for Voices of Standing Rock. You're listening to Making Contact. And today we bring you narratives from several Native American communities, from Standing Rock to the Bay, with the Ohlone. The Ohlone are the first people of the Bay Area. They covered the coastline in San Francisco and lived as far inland as Salinas Valley. After genocide and subjugation by the Spanish, the Ohlone were all but completely eradicated and enveloped within the New World. Their languages and culture criminalized and swallowed up. It would be several generations before the Ohlone would be able to regenerate and reclaim fractions of their land, elements of their culture. Making Contact Community Storytelling Fellow, Vincent Medina, is part of the current generation of Ohlone that are deeply invested in language and cultural revitalization, whether fighting for sacred shell mounds in Berkeley or teaching Chochenyo language courses at Mission San Jose. Vincent finds firm footing in his deep running roots. Aye payan hitkanakshe amashmite ya payan muakma aloni. Imhen truhi toakshek ma watin makruai taka aye kik ne mak wetrish 
Payan hit kanakshe yawatin. Our language almost vanished from the earth. In 1921, in the midst of this tragedy, an elderly woman living in the deep brown canyons of Sinol, named Angela de los Colos, proclaimed with defiance, Kana akwe tak yuwa tak nanwente. As for me, I am not going to stop speaking. She, along with the also aging Jose Guzman, worked frantically to record, speak, and protect Chochenyo, the language spoken in the East Bay since time immemorial, which was on the brink of death, the precipice of never being used again. What a world that must have been. I can only imagine, but my heart begins to ache at the thought. These people, my elders, my heroes, they made a conscious decision to keep speaking Chochenyo, and to fight against time as though in the defiance of gravity. They knew they were the only ones who could protect our language, and they lunged, ducked, and leapt over the hurdles of reality in order to keep the flicker of light from moving into ashes and darkness. Angela and Jose, they weren't going out without a fight. Yellow parchment papers became full of frantic scribbles, an outpour of heartbreak, family histories, gossip, lore, loss and victories, and stories that stretch back to the very beginning of time, described with such an intimacy and an immediacy that they seem to have happened yesterday. Tales of a time when giants roamed the East Bay, when Coyote left his footprints embedded in the earth, when hills and spirits had emotions and proper names, when bodies of stone were defeated in the underworlds, and when songs were sung just about Mount Diablo and Mission Peak. Don't forget this, I picture them telling us. Don't give up on this. All right, now let's read these words together, okay? Just so we can get the pronunciation. So for day, truhi. Truhi. No, try again. Truhi. Truhi. Try it with your tongue a little bit further back in your throat. Truhi. Truhi. Hee, horse. Rakat. Rakat. Say it a little bit longer. Rakat. Rakat. My name is Gabriel Medina and I'm 13 years old. I've been learning around two years. It's like a secret language. I was in fourth grade and we were doing the mission project and we were learning about um, um, Native American Indians and I told my teacher that, that I was Native American and she said that I wasn't because I didn't look Native American and she knows what a Native American looks like. It's her, it's her opinion, I know that I am though. I realized just the sounds of the language were something incredible on its own. Being able to connect those old sounds to places here in the East Bay, you could hear the land in the language itself. You know, wherever you're at here in this place, you can often just see like those those drops and rises and falls that make the Bay Area what it is, and that's so embedded within our language. It helped me connect in a way to my ancestors that, that just the words strictly on their own might not. There's context that's there. It tells people who are related. It tells the conditions that people had to go through. It tells the experiences that people had and how people consistently survived and adapted to the changes around them and kept intact what they could 
in order to keep their culture strong and alive. And when I would read that and connect that with the words, connect that with living in my land and the fact that Gabriel and myself, you know, two brothers, we, we both were born in our traditional village. We're meant to be in our homeland. We're meant to be speaking this language. Our elders, they're, they're our guiding forces in many ways. They, they are linked to the old world that our ancestors lived in. When you, when you go to the language, because I know that you've been to one of the language classes that we had here, when you, when you, when you use some of the Chochenyo words, how does, how does it make you feel? when you use them. Oh, I, I feel that I'm not saying them properly. <laughs> Surpri you know what? Surprisingly, and I, I talked about this um, with one of the professors that I have at, um, at UC Berkeley that I work with. And out of everybody, when, when we were having that, that class that first time, you got the pronunciation the closest to the way that I hear the old people say it in the, in the recordings. Oh, really? And it was because I think that you probably heard stuff growing up so somewhere back there in your mind, it's still there. But when you would get the sounds, there's a sounds that I can't get when I, when I pronounce things that you Well, Aunt Dottie, in many ways, she's like the matriarch of our family. It must be because you heard it growing up. Probably so. Yeah. You know, some words stick and some words don't. <laughs> and some words you can't get them out. <laughs> yeah. You know, as hard as you try. She's a tough lady. She's a strong lady. And she's always... She's always been somebody who's carried culture forward for us. She's always, and throughout her life, found ways to protect our identity. And she's always found ways to make sure that those who are around are proud to be Ohlone. In the 1960s, Aunt Dottie was, was the one who led our cemetery being saved near Mission San Jose. Well, the only, the only person that I ever heard speak the language would be Uncle Dario. Mm -hmm. And there were some other uh, family members that came from Livermore that also spoke the language. But uh, to say that I ever remembered what they said, you know, I couldn't repeat it because I don't know the language. She listened to the old timers who lived on the old Sunil Rancheria and listen to them speak the language, listen to them tell the old stories that stretch back to the very beginning. Proud of, of yourself that has uh, taken it, you've taken this upon yourself to be able to teach the younger people the language, which is something that we never had, you know, only bits and pieces now and then, but nothing that ever stuck to us because we were too busy with other thoughts. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I understand. You know. Kathy, she, She's a really unique person because she's able to, to know a whole lot about the old ways. And Kathy also has a lot of insight about my great-grandmother, Mary Archuleta, who for a brief time while she was in college, she lived with her in the 1970s. When I spoke with Kathy, Kathy was telling me that she could remember hearing our language spoken all the way into the 1950s. She could remember her mother, Maggie Peanuts, and my great-grandmother standing around and she could hear the language. I just remember thinking to myself how much pride and how much and how excited I felt to know that my great-grandmother, somebody who held me in her arms, that she might have been a speaker of our language in her younger years. There we go. 
Okay, so um, so basically, I just wanted to ask you a few questions just about about Nana and especially what she was like um, with in your in your younger years when you were visiting when you lived with her. I, one thing I always wondered about, especially with with Nana, because I know that she spent time um, in the orphanage at the mission, and I know that her mom Victoria Marine passed away um, when she was very young over in Sinol, and. And the stories that I hear from my grandma about this was that things got really hard when she entered the orphanage, where she was separated from her sister Flora, and um, there was obviously some some really rough things that happened. But I wondered, especially because when I was a kid, Nana was always so proud to be Indian. She was always so proud about who she was, and she would always tell us, you know, um, that, that we're Ohlone. And I wonder how. Just how how she was able to carry on all of that pride in her culture, even with the things that she had to go through that were painful. And she was a lot like my grandmother, Erolinda. <clears throat> the both of them were in uh, Maggie Juarez and Pete Juarez's house. They were living with them. Okay. Evidently, they must have. My uh, great great aunt. I guess she would be my great-great-aunt, uh, Maggie Peanuts. I get what they called her Peanuts, but it was Maggie Juarez. She's the one that took them, I believe, out of the orphanage. And I guess because your Nana was chosen and not the rest of them, that that may have caused, you know, the, the conflict or the bad feelings, you know. But they used to get called to um, for the, the meat, the buffalo meat, okay? And when every year when they would get called, she would make the calls to everybody, and we were one of the families. We'd all get together and we'd go to a lonely uh, park, and we would all celebrate. We'd all be dancing. Mike loved to dance. Your Nana made all of his regala, all of his clothing, okay? My sister Margaret is your Nana's godmother. Oh, wow. Yeah, so that's how close we were, you know. And your Nana would make things and give it to my sister because that was her, her godchild. That's funny. Yeah. Did, um, with Nana, so you, you could remember that there was times so that that the that Erolinda and, um, and Maggie Peanuts, they would speak the language, right? Yeah. Can you kind of keep them guys quiet? There were birds that were very loud in the background. And I remember when I would go to see my great-grandmother as a child, there would be birds that would always um, be everywhere in her house. And the same birds were, were in Kathy's as well. Oh, glorious fighters, stubborn ancestors, people of defiance, people of wisdom, gravity breakers. Today, as a result of your refusal to surrender our language, we can speak the words yet again. Because of those scribbles on parchment paper, our land hears Chochenyo a second time. It's been inside of us all along. The words, they caress us like a loving grandmother's embrace. They comfort us like an old familiar song, and they bring us dignity by connecting us to our ancestors.
They connect us to the East Bay, Makruaitka, our home, Makperetska, our land, the place that we love, the place that those before us fought so hard to stay in, the place that we originate from. My elders, my heroes, you saved our language from ever being forgotten, and we will not relinquish Chochenyo, for it thrives in the footsteps of giants. Urshatruhi hemmenya kanakrakat vince medina ayanesem tahi making contact. That's it for this week's Making Contact. Did you hear something on today's show that moved you? Share it with a friend, a coworker, or a family member. Lisa Rudman is our executive director. Monica Lopez, Marie Che, and Anita Johnson are our producers. Sabine Blazan is our audience engagement director, and our development associate is Vera Dekolsker. To download a copy of our show or to subscribe to our podcast, please visit radioproject.org. I'm your host, RJ Lozada, and thank you for listening to Making Contact.